0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tau Foundation.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the synopsis of my cyber opera, Il contadino che ha cancellato qualcosa di importante. The peasant who deleted something important. <laughs> Act 1. Alfonso and the other peasants are dancing in the square. They have successfully gotten rid of the annoying pop-ups on their computers. The beautiful Marcella steps forward and sings Ho dimenticato la password de finestre. I've forgot my Windows password. <laughs> Act 2. The townspeople gather in a meadow under a warm morning sun to watch Prince Lenovo attempt the impossible. He sings, Posso ottenere l'accesso a questo sito? I can log on to this health insurance website. But now there's a terrible storm. Alfonso cries out that he's made a mistake with the delete key. The chorus sings, Propria connessione de rete e morto. Your net connection is dead. Act 3. A shepherd girl arrives with a system restore disk. She sings "Beniere quel muro di fuoco. Turn off that firewall." The computers begin to work again, but then the villain Viroso hurls their hard drives into the sea. Alfonso sings "Per sempre avermo messaggi de errore. We will forever have error messages." He falls over dead. The opera ends. Too dark. Today we're discussing the modern uses of opera, and now the lead tenor and the Wi-Fi of Long Island... Colin McEnroe.
3: Yes, we're doing, taking cyber opera very seriously. Hers uh, seems sounds a little suspiciously like Rossini, but uh, we'll be in court on that probably, as well as everything else that we talk about today. We are talking about opera, the sort of the, the present and future uses of opera, the joys of opera, and the challenges faced by opera. With us in studio, we are privileged to have Willie Waters, the former director of uh, Connecticut Opera, uh, and many other things besides, as you'll learn as we go along today. Steve Midcalf was the current uh, full-time music critic for over twenty years, and from there a faculty member and faculty Founder curator of the Garmony Chamber Music Series at Hard School. Anne Majette is in a studio in Washington, D.C. Uh, she's the chief classical music critic at the Washington Post. A little bit later in the show, you'll hear a pre recorded interview with Nico Muley, who's sort of the bad boy of opera right now. So um, I'm going to begin by asking. Um, all of you, and let's see uh, let's start with uh, with Willie waters uh, on, on this one. you know, I mean every day it feels like not every day, but frequently you pick up the paper and you read some horrible news, like the New York City Opera is declaring bankruptcy um, you know and, and, and this can be looked at as part of a larger virus that has taken out a lot of opera companies across America. We used to have a few of them here in Connecticut. we don't so much anymore. Uh, San Antonio, Baltimore, they just sort of drop off. Um, on the other hand if you try to get a ticket to see one of these kind of um uh, movie screen operas one of these one of these you know multiplexes where they devote a movie screen to you know to the actual showing of an opera those tickets they sell out i mean they pack excuse me they pack people into those shows so it seems like people Really, really like opera, but opera companies don't do so well. What's what's going on here? Can you explain to people who who aren't that familiar with it
4: what the problem is, if there is one? Well, of course there is a problem, but I mean, <clears throat> I would question uh, your your statement a bit only because I've I've attended many of the uh, the HD performances here in in the greater Hartford area. And unfortunately, in the last two or three years, they have not been selling. Well. Oh. Even though they've added, they've added theaters in both mm. the places in Hartford, but they've not been selling as well as one would think, and those are small theaters. Um, th- they've added operas, too. The Met has added operas, and so it's a lot for, for people to make uh, commitments because you know most of the people who go are 65 and older. So the audience is not, the demographic is not basically changing very much, certainly in terms of those HDs. I mean, it's basically people who'd rather see good opera at a cheap price rather than go into the theater. And so that, that that's what's happening there.
3: Steve Makeup, is that the problem, just the demographic changing? Is there another structural problem you think that, that, that opera well, faces?
4: Well, you know, I do think obviously
5: opera shares in some of the woes that afflict classical music and serious music and for that matter serious performing arts generally in this country. But um, I would argue that there's an additional problem with opera which has to do with repertoire that you – you really have this very odd situation, and Willie and I have talked about this over the years, where if you if you take away the the few really big houses in this country, the Met and Chicago Lyric and so on, and and instead just talk about the smaller regional companies that of which there are like a hundred and some in this country, it's it's incredible that uh, really there are about twelve or fourteen works operas. Uh, that are done at these houses over and over and over, because those are the works that can sell tickets and sustain the the operation and those those twelve or fourteen pieces are well known to everybody and especially well known to the audience but it 's very difficult, I think to sustain an art form on on fourteen pieces and and also you know the the, the sort of related question that new works are not readily embraced by uh, by opera audiences and so I think those two things are particularly uh, afflicting the opera world
3: and and Majet he's kind of setting up a catch 22 here if you don't do the celebrated war horses uh, then you you'll lose your audience but if you rely too much on the celebrated war horses you'll bore your audience to tears and, and lose the energy that keeps you going what's your reaction to that?
6: Well, my answer is you have to move the frame of the picture, um, which is to say that the opera companies you listed that are folding are larger opera companies. Opera is a hugely expensive art form, but uh, the Baltimore Opera, for example, which has actually been replaced, there's a new company that's springing up to replace them, but they did big standard works. What we are seeing a lot of now are smaller companies doing smaller scale works, a lot of chamber opera, and a lot of those companies are thriving. The Gotham Opera in New York, the Opera Philadelphia um, is doing a lot of work with smaller, more experimental pieces in different venues and playing around with that. In Washington in November, we're going to have Urban Arias, which does one-act contemporary operas. We're going to have a new opera about the Holocaust. That's fun. Um, (laughs) And the Washington National Opera is going to premiere three 20-minute operas as part of its commissioning program. Um, I think opera has actually more appeal to younger audiences than any other form of classical music, certainly than orchestral concerts. Um, There's the drama, there's the excitement, there's the buzz. Um, The Met may be kind of flooding the zone with these HD broadcasts, but I wouldn't take that as a sign of gloom and doom, I think that market will readjust itself. And I also don't take city opera as a sign of field-wide gloom and doom, because I think that house folded due to a particular constellation of bad decisions and lousy management. And while opera companies are certainly not having an easy time in the current economy, I don't think city opera is a bellwether of the, in the way people are sometimes taking it.
3: You know, I just want to probe one thing that you said here for a, a second, In Majed, and that is uh, the notion that opera has a, a specific and special appeal to younger audience audiences, maybe more so than some of the other conventional forms. Is, is that... Is that true or is it something that could be true? In other words, is it already true that younger audiences are more likely to respond to opera than, say, symphonic music or or, or whatever? Or is it true that if done right, opera should appeal to that audience better?
6: No I would I mean I'm basing it partly anecdotally, and I suppose I no longer qualify as a younger audience, but I know that none of my college roommates had much interest ever in going to an orchestra concert with me, but everybody will go to an opera there's the drama there's the sets there's a sort of general interest. I remember a friend's an older friend's daughter who was in her twenties seeing the Met broadcast in Times Square when they did Madame Butterfly and going straight off and buying a ticket because she was so jazzed about that Madame Butterfly um. I had some other anecdotal examples of that kind of appeal. I and mean, then you have some of these smaller, funkier operas and Philip Glass operas, and you do see younger audiences at that. Um, I think it does have a younger appeal. I I have not done the homework. I'm sure that the marketing departments of various opera companies can quote you chapter and verse on the actual ages of people. I'm not seeing a lot of young people at the Washington National Opera, um, but I think there are companies that are tapping into it very successfully.
3: You know, I think maybe it's a good idea also to step back and define our terms a little bit more, too, because we're talking about opera and we're obviously talking sometimes about these grand-scale, gaudy, fabulous, uh, you know, large-scale operas on the other hand, we're also talking about chamber opera and I, I know whereof you speak to a certain degree every year. The New Haven Festival of Arts and Ideas has at least one fabulous interesting looking funky small scale chamber opera. Um, but in some ways I think for the average person who hasn't really followed trends in music, even the ability to link those two things is the same genre in their heads may be uh, not entirely there umbilically. So um, maybe let's take a step back, Willie
4: Waters. When we, when we talk about opera what what is an opera? What are we If we're talking about the form what is the form well I, I've worked with many young artist programs and and apprentice programs attached to opera companies in which we take opera into the schools and um, we use the basic definition a very you know elementary basic definition that opera is a story that is sung um, and then the second part of that is that it's sung by voices that are trained to project uh, into a, a large theater over an orchestra Beyond that, it begins to be a bit murky because, um, you know, we, we've had lots of pieces that some are considered operas like Sweeney Todd or not like Sweeney Todd. Um, and, uh, you know, so that, that's one of the clearest, I think, definitions that one can use for an opera. It's just a story uh, set to music, uh, most of which is sung.
3: Um, Metcalf uh obviously maybe a way to adapt it is, is to say that uh, opera is a story which is sung but not by russell crow uh, because, <laughs> because Mise is a story which Anybody is ideas. <laughs> well you know i
5: i 've talked about this before i mean i i 'm among those, and I realize there are many who are not uh, who who basically take the position that you know you you can't you can 't on the one hand say that Daughter of the Regiment is a serious piece of art, and then say that Candide or Sweeney Todd is not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just can't Thank do you. that. And uh, furthermore, if there's a little bit of dialogue in the latter, you know, that doesn't disqualify it either. We we were just down, actually, this past weekend at Goodspeed to see Frank Lesser's Most Happy Fella, mm-hmm. which is a piece I hadn't actually seen in decades. And it's a charming, wonderful piece. It's beautifully crafted. You know, it's wonderfully orchestrated. I I imagine he didn't personally do the orchestrations, but nevertheless, it's a great piece. It's it's certainly um, a piece that's appropriate for trained voices, as Willie says, and it's operatic in its ambitions. And so, I have no no problem, no hesitation in in calling that an opera and a very and a very uh, workable, successful one at that. So, I so I do think we have to put those so-called musical theater works in there if we're going to be true yeah. true to ourselves.
3: I heard you say thank you, Anne Majette.
6: I just agree wholeheartedly, and I've had this argument quite a bit because uh, many opera companies are starting to put musicals into their repertory, and it's been a very difficult fight between them and their patrons to figure out how to present these musicals, but I actually had a discussion with somebody who claimed that if it was in English, it really couldn't be an opera, (laughs) (laughs) which is a pretty lame definition. Don't tell Nico Muley that.
4: (laughs) A lot (laughs) of people think that. Or Benjamin Benjamin Britten. Or
6: Benjamin Britten, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> All right,
3: we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to get back with more of this. We'd love to hear from you. You may tweet us at WNPR.com. Oh. Billy Waters is here, the former director of the Connecticut Opera uh, and many other things besides. Uh, Steve Metcalf, as I just said here, this Steve Metcalf, Steve Metcalf One is here, <laughs> and and Majet from uh, the Washington Post also with us. We're talking about the present and the future of opera. You know, uh, Anne Majet, as we close this last segment, Anne uh, as you close the last segment, you were saying, you know, you talk to people sometimes you say if, if it's in English, it can't possibly be an opera, but, but what's really happening here, and we'll You'd be talking to Nico Muley, one of the uh, practitioners of this, is, is increasingly we're seeing operas that are about very contemporary things, uh, that are about the Achille Laurel hijacking, they're about Anna Nicole Smith, they're about, they're, as they say on Law and Order, ripped from today's headlines. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and you sort of, I mean, it's, it seems to me anyway that that could be a very energizing thing for opera, depending on whether or not it's It's done well, I guess. Can can you tell us a little bit more about that? What kinds of themes and topics you're seeing now?
6: Well, I would say first that opera has always dealt with topical themes. I mean, opera in the 19th century was what Hollywood is today. If there was a popular book, you went out and made an opera of it. Sir Walter Scott, perhaps Willie knows better than I do, how many operas were made of Sir Walter Scott books. It's over 100. Right. Um, so the idea that uh, that this is somehow new or different. I mean, Offenbach's operettas are all filled with contemporary references. Um, but... I would say starting probably with John Adams' Nixon and China, Mm -hmm. the idea of doing a contemporary political piece um, gained great currency. It was seen as a vaguely provocative thing, and there have been dozens and dozens of attempts since then, um, either taking a political figure like Harvey Milk, a sort of noble operatic figure, or Anna Nicole Smith most recently, um, an opera by Mark Anthony Turnage that was City Opera's swan song before it bit the dust the other week. but I've seen there's an oratorio of the Alfredo Gonzale, Alberto Gonzalez hearings by the composer Melissa Dunphy. Basically, you can set anything you want. Um, opera is about – there should be a dramatic element to opera, I guess, of throwing out definitions. And people seek that. And I, I fear a little bit seek relevance by grabbing contemporary topics. But I certainly would rather see Anna Nicole than yet another opera that's a setting of a famous player book.
3: The um, you know even now the Gotham uh, Chamber Opera which you mentioned is doing a version I think of uh, Princess of the, and the P but it's done as reality television where there are cameras kind of chasing the people all over the stage. Willie really Waters, just to come back to Steve Metcalf's earlier point, that as you look sort of regionally around the country, you know, there are opera companies doing the same 16 operas over and over again. Um, the audience for those, I would assume, is really, I know I said this before, but I want to get you to react to it, is maybe somewhat different than the audience for these. These funky contemporary o- operas that that often deal with either classic themes in a very contemporary uh, in very technological way, or with very contemporary <laughs> themes,
4: absolutely. And and you know you find in most I mean most opera audiences are traditional and conservative. You know you have some companies like St. Louis, like Santa Fe, uh, New York City Opera in the, the earlier in its earlier days, um, which which try to to introduce new operas, new and interesting operas. Houston Grand Opera commissioned lots of operas in the the seventies and eighties. But but you know it's hard to bring audiences along. And I think one of the major reasons is uh certainly now we've taken uh, the arts out of the public schools you know to the point that kids are not getting exposure you know to to symphony to opera to to the arts in general and so they they have nothing to fall back on they have nothing to compare to and they have no experience that will lead them to go into the in, into the theater i see you fidgeting I over there that.
5: well I, I i was only um thinking to myself uh, and this was this was actually an idea that popped into my head as we were watching most happy fellow last week you know, this this is a sort of a cliche, I suppose, to say, but but there really is an interesting uh, and uniquely operatic question, I think, centering around the idea of tune mm-hmm. or melody, mm-hmm. um, and and it's become a you know it's become this kind of odd catch twenty two more so I think in opera than in than say symphonic music, um, and in fact, if I may, uh, I, I want to quote briefly from Tony Tomasini's review of of Nico's uh, Two Boys in which he says quote there is none of the cheap melodrama of neo romantic styles that you hear too often in new operas um unquote now I, you know i think we sort of know what he meant and i think that you know maybe we even sort of agree with it but on the other hand it it veers dangerously close to saying if you stop and and have a sort of diatonic tune you know you're you're going to pay for it and and there's a there's a sort of an odd contradiction going on i think uh even among hipper younger people i think the idea of tune is not lost and yet and yet you know there's a there's a sense in which you know critics and others and other hipsters you know are are suspicious of it and it's and it's a difficult corner that we've painted ourselves into.
3: Well, you know, and, and Majet, again, you know, he sets up kind of an interesting collision course here. On the one hand, you've got an audience that, uh, in the words of Stephen Sondheim, wants a tune, you can hum. And then you've got another... <laughs> I'll let,
5: I'll let, you, know <laughs> I'll let you know when Stravinsky has a hit. I'll let you
3: know when Stravinsky has a And, and on, on the other hand, you've got an audience that, that he's imputing to um, a problem, too, with that, a pro- an audience that is going to listen to that song, uh, going to listen to that tune, that hummable part uh, of a modern opera, and say, well, that's not cool. I uh,
6: I had a friend who said she didn't want to hear Britain's Peter Grimes because of the, all the ugly modern music. Britain's <laughs> oh, Peter gosh. Grimes being one of the most melodic pieces right. in the repertoire. No but to her, it was contemporary and new and scary. So I think there's a lot of um, context and mental preparation or mental obstacle to this. One thing that intrigued me that a, a company director told me a couple of years ago was that you had a lot of American regional opera companies grow up in the 70s in the wake of the Met stopping touring. There was an, an audience with an appetite for opera that no longer had a touring company coming through. Regional operas grew up. Those audiences have now matured and they've heard a whole bunch of La OMs and they've heard a whole bunch of those 14 operas and the audiences themselves are starting to get a little restless. Mm. It's now evidently harder to sell a Regoletto than it used to be, but they don't quite know what they want to replace it. And um, so you're seeing a lot more new opera, a lot more houses in the last couple of years than we had seen before that. Um, San Francisco did two new main stage operas within three months this calendar year, one in June and one in September. Um, The one in September based on Stephen King's novel, Dolores Mm -hmm. Claiborne, if you want a topical topic, and um, the other one based on the Gospel, According to Mary. Um, But I think that... uh, there is more of a of an appetite for that kind of music, but then you're you're getting people who are indeed looking for tunes. And a large problem with a lot of contemporary opera, as you say, Stephen, is that um, there's a convoluted, tortured quality to people trying to write well for the voice and write melodically without committing the sin of lapsing into an actual melody.
5: And and it's complicated and, because I I don't mind saying, and I have certainly irritated many of my friends with this. I don't mind saying that even though I have no problem calling Les Mis or Miss Saigon contemporary operas, I I find that music very boring and derivative and dumb. And I think I Dreamed a Dream is one of the worst tunes of (laughs) the last 50 years. And yet, and yet I know plenty of people who, who really, you know, find it very satisfying and, and, you know, so, I mean, it, it really is in the ear of the beholder in a kind of crazy way. But
3: But, Willie...
6: You know, you also know it when you hear it. I think that in general, Peter Grimes is a very compelling or Votzek, a great example of an opera people think they're not going to like by Alban Berg because it's a contemporary, challengingly non-tonal piece, and yet it's incredibly powerful, dramatically, incredibly beautifully constructed, and it usually gets a very powerful reaction from the audience once they get into the theater. I mean,
3: Willie, maybe this goes back to some of your points about education, too, because ultimately, in order to have the thing that we're talking about, you've got to have a generation of composers who came along who were hip enough and cool enough to be making really interesting modern operas, but also sufficiently imbued in musical tradition so that they can write tuneful, modern opera, so that an idiot like me, I might be really attracted to the idea of, wow, a Stephen King novel that you turned into. An, I may mean, I'll go see that. But then if I'm assaulted with kind of a lot of atonal music that I'm just, you know, not cool enough to handle, then that might be my last visit to the opera. But but is part of it just, you know, the creators, the composers having those people who can kind of work both sides
4: of that street? Well, d- Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, I would like to, you know, when, when I was coming up in the operatic world, I mean, we would say there were a lot of contemporary operas that were sort of classroom exercises, that composers wrote them for their own edification and not for audiences, because certainly at that time, we're talking about the 70s and 80s, um, audiences were indeed, as I think they still are, traditional and conservative. So it's hard, it's hard to get people, you know, to do something new and different in opera. And it's very strange because in most other things in our lives, we, we do things, we change, we do new things all the time. But for some reason in opera, we get stuck in you know something that keeps us from going further. And I, I maintain, though, that if we can get people into the theater, we can make the case for a lot of these pieces, but it's getting them there, that's the problem. Let me go, but, go ahead.
5: Well, I just want to say, if, to, just to take the melody idea one tortured step further, <laughs> you know, Sondheim, who you just quoted, Colin, uh, from, from Merly, you know, is is a very instructive example. Of course, he's an instructive example about a lot of things. But I mean, in the in in the narrow question of of melody, you know, how many times do we read or hear from people about, you know, Sondheim? You know, I, I enjoy the shows, but they're just, you know, where are the tunes? Where are the, where are the melodies? A la Richard Rodgers and stuff. Well, of course, I think most of us who spend half a minute with Sunday in the park or into the woods or Sweeney certainly would say, you know, these are fantastic are lots of m- melodies. <laughs> and then they are every bit the equal of Rogers and 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 Gershwin and whatever. You know, so so clearly melody and modernism, you know, are are wrapped in this kind of complicated dance that, that I'm not sure we've uh, Figured out yet? Let me grab a well, call. Well, let's here. remember yeah.
6: that when Carmen—I'm sorry—when Carmen premiered, people hated it because it had no melody. Just remember. Yeah,
5: but yeah. about but about <laughs> ten years later, that was all gone away. I mean, most of yes. most of the standard rep operas were standard rep within eight or ten years.
3: Well, let me grab yeah. a call here from uh, Carolyn in Walcott. Uh, we're going to have uh, an interview with Nicole Muley and just Nicole Muley in just a second here, but uh, here's uh, Carolyn in Walcott. Hi.
7: I'm a private voice instructor. I teach at Summit Studios in Manchester, and I am very much enjoying this conversation. Um, What I had to say, though, I was agreeing with um, what you guys were saying before about getting kids, you know, exposed to opera and just getting rid of their even negative connotations that they might have about it. But I feel like, um, you know, being an instructor, half the time it's getting it past the parents, which I find very strange. (laughs) Um, You know, kids, parents, want their kids to be studying for, you know, their American Idol debut as mm-hmm. opposed to the longevity of their singing voices, and I just—I was wondering what your guest had to say about that.
3: Mm. Parents who don't foster this? You're nodding. Well, uh, so well, you have to answer. Or, or Anne, you can answer. And then yeah, we'll... go ahead. Ann. I was
6: just going to say that I think that the lack of arts education is a symptom rather than a cause to begin with. And I think what you've just said about the parents really bears that out, because if today's generation doesn't have arts education, the parents' generation did have some arts education, and it didn't make a huge difference. I think our society is shifting in powerful ways, and that arts education today would be a very different thing than it was in the 50s. It wouldn't focus only on classical music, nor should it, because our society is a much bigger place musically than only classical music, much as I love that. Um, But I think that I've I've said over and over, I think it's the 40- and 50-year-olds, 30-, 40- and 50-year-olds. People should be really working to target because that's the generation that's really stopped going. Um, And if they don't go, the kids aren't going to follow them.
5: Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, having grown up in a town whose public school system had fantastic and continues, blessedly, to have fantastic music programs and music education, you know, it it doesn't necessarily follow. I hate to break this to you, Willie, but it doesn't necessarily follow that waves of – of those kids, uh, you know, are going to be uh, buying tickets to Defrau on a shot, in, you know, in New York. So, you know, it's it's a much larger cultural phenomenon than I'm afraid than just public school uh, music programs.
4: Yeah, but but my point is primarily is probably more appreciation than anything else. I mean, at least if they're exposed to it, then they can make they can make a judgment. You know, yes, I'm going to go, not I'm going to go. But if they if they don't if they aren't exposed to it, then you know they take you know their their responsibility for other people and then they say no this mm. is this is terrible I mean they're they're all true you know it, it's 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 just finding a way to to break that barrier and, and this is something we've been struggling with from the 60s and 70s when I first started an up op-
3: So we're re-airing a show we did last year about the present and future of opera. And this is a conversation with Nico Muley, one of the bright young stars of opera, which was recorded right around the time his opera Two Boys was premiering at the Met. Nico Muley is one of the bright lights uh, of this world that we're talking about today. He's a composer and arranger based in New York City. He's joining us by phone. Uh, His uh, first full-scale opera, Two Boys, was commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera, Lincoln Center, and the English National Opera. It is creating all kinds of waves all over this uh, place. Nico Muley, first of all, uh, for people who haven't been following all the press, give people a sense of what the opera is about.
7: The opera, it takes place about 12 years ago in in the sort of early days of chat rooms and basically follows the story of a policewoman who's a creature of the analog world who's asked to solve a crime that seems quite simple where an older boy pretty plainly stabbed a younger boy. And in the process of investigating this, she realizes that a lot of the motivation and a lot of the intrigue of what, what happened, the sort of backstory, happened online. And as such, she has to sort of familiarize herself with this somewhat terrifying landscape.
3: So you're trying to do a whole bunch of different things here. One, one of the things is to create different musical signatures for what happens online uh, versus the, the flesh and blood world, right?
7: Right. That's, that's one of the challenges of the piece
3: talk about how you address that challenge. In other words, are there, you're really writing music in pretty different styles for those two landscapes?
7: Style is a weird and loaded word. I mean, I tried to do it as best I could. First of all, it's, it's an entirely acoustic opera, so I, I didn't avail myself of any synthesizers or, or pre-recorded elements. So instead, what you have is that the chorus becomes part of the texture of the online world. And so what I did was I, I wrote very simple harmonic music for them but then gave each chorister a separate piece of text to repeat on sort of any, any given note. So what you end up with is, is this kind of shimmering bowl of kind of infinite information.
3: Um, let's give people a sense of this. Uh, we'll, we'll play just a little bit of uh, the act two chorus, I Saw You in Algebra. So, Nico Muley, tell us what's going on in that chorus.
7: What's going on in that chorus is that we've we've just had a very intense, real-life interaction. Uh, It's the first meeting in actual flesh space between these two boys, and as they're relationship sort of intensifies. The chorus starts painting this very milky picture of life online, during which the text that Megan Meyer, um, who was a young girl who killed herself a couple of years ago, it was the text that she was sent um, right before she, she um, hanged herself, sung by two members of the, of the Metropolitan Opera Chorus. Um, so what you have is this, this idea that Even if you're casually observing online, there's always someone cajoling someone else to do something terrible or someone sort of emotionally manipulating someone else.
3: Throughout the opera, we have uh, this, you know, very high-sounding music, this very high-culture-sounding music. But what's coming out of people's mouths is often the sort of more pedestrian kind of speech that one encounters in high school, that one encounters in middle school, that one encounters online. And obviously, it's meant quite seriously do you feel that there's a, a little bit of a tension sometimes between just the majesty of the music and and what people are actually saying?
7: I would disagree r- right from the beginning of your statement that, okay. that there is music that sounds like high culture. That sounds like a very... That, that seems like a very, a very strange thing for one human being to say to another human being. So I'd, I'd advise you to, to rethink that just as it relates to your own life. But also, I mean, I think opera has always concerned itself not with being lofty at all, but by being quite mundane. I mean, in, in the beginning of The Marriage of Figaro is, is, essentially a, is essentially a trip to Home Depot. I mean, it's not – it doesn't get poetic until much later. So, no, I mean, I think there's a tension because the language itself is not very poetic the way people speak to each other online. But that's sort of what we were going force. It's, del- it's deliberately tense.
3: So, uh, in a way, uh, you have prefaced my next question, which is that you, you're obviously sort of mining, as a lot of people writing opera these days are, mining contemporary events for operatic subjects. Uh, I'm assuming what you would say is this, this really isn't necessarily all that new. It's just that when what we look at classic opera, what we don't understand is that they were be- essentially doing the same thing?
7: Yes, quite. And I think, you know, an opera has always engaged, you know, either super directly or in in a kind of code with the world it it inhabits, if that makes sense. Like, you know, I think in a lot of Mozart operas, of course, they can be read allegorically as, you know, representations of his community. It's a strange thing to think that opera needs to concern itself only with mythic. I mean, I think there's so many examples of the operatic in our daily lives that that sort of makes sense to me.
3: So do you find that you are, I mean, I saw, for example, you didn't ask me anything on Reddit. Uh, Somebody asked you about uh, other operatic subjects, and you directed them to a New York Magazine article about uh, a divorce within the Orthodox Jewish community that, according to New York Magazine, has achieved the status of urban legend in Orthodox communities from New York to Jerusalem. It involves accusations of of bribery. It's being called a Hasidic version of Jarndyce versus Jarndyce, the the Dickens' bleak house case. Oh, it's amazing.
7: I mean, what's amazing about that is that it's so specific to this one. Community, but it's also something that we all we all totally understand, which is the complicated ways in which an arranged marriage can go can go south.
3: In other words, as you're but as you're encountering the real world, you're encountering the news around you. To you, that's opera, operatic
7: fodder. It, it seems like it. Yeah, I mean, I think you know this is this is not in any way to put down the, the work that other people have done. But I think in a lot of cases, if something is a good book, it's a good book. It doesn't necessarily need to be turned into an opera or something. That, you know, in mythology, I like I like that myths are told sort of orally. I'm not sure that I, I want to see it on the stage. If that makes sense. But again, this is, a, this is a very personal thing. Like the things that intrigue and arouse me are in the news
3: another thing that you are, I think, you know, at 32, you're sort of an opera composer. This is a fairly new thing, an opera composer who's lived a lot of your life online, too. You know, you really have a very active Twitter feed with lots of followers. You, you know, as we just said, you didn't ask me anything on, on Reddit. Are you getting a sense, as you hear from audiences, audiences that uh, see the opera, Two Boys, that that generation, which has lived a lot of its life online, gets this opera in a way that maybe somebody who's 55 Sixty-sixty-five doesn't because so little of their lives has been lived uh, on the digital platforms.
7: Well, yes and no. I mean, I think to a certain extent that is true because uh, you know people, my, specifically my age, have told me, "Oh, that's so crazy!" Like when I when I saw that, I recognized my literal own self in high school doing those exact things. But in this opera, our narrator is an offline creature. This is a woman who mm-hmm. this is a woman who belongs who is in her fifties, we assume, and who belongs to. A generation who's used to getting information and used to getting she's used to having information presented to her in a very specifically analog way so in that sense i think you know the opera shouldn't be alienating to people in their 50s and 60s and and in fact they have a they have a very good sort of tour guide through hell in this offline detective
3: do you also sense in the work that you're doing right now obviously you are heir to a, a modern tradition that includes philip glass and uh, and Steve Reich and Meredith Monk and, and people like that. But you also cite as influences uh, people like Paul Simon, Tracy Chapman, uh, Sufjan Stevens is somebody I know you've already collaborated with. Is there kind of a sense now that what opera is uh, is a little less segregated and, and that a lot of different kinds or styles of, of musical composers can work in the, the, the opera genre?
7: Um, yes and no. I mean, I don't really worry too much about genre because it stopped being relevant when they closed the record stores, right? Mm-hmm. And opera used to be, as you pointed out, opera used to be the craziest place in the record store. Like you'd you'd walk into the store, and then you have to go into the classical section, which itself was you know, cordoned off, and then and you know, it felt like you were buying porn, right? And then you went into the opera section, and it was even crazier, and the, and the people were even more kind of dire. I'm not sure that it's a question of the style of music. I mean, I think the piece that I just wrote is a very specific construction. It's a grand opera. It's for a- unamplified singers and orchestra. It belongs in a space that does that, which isn't to say that something like that there isn't room for something like Steve Reich's The Cave, which I think is one of the high-water marks of, like, Western civilization, which is for, you know, a small ensemble of amplified instruments, a small ensemble of amplified voices, um, and a bunch of video screens. It's, I just don't worry too much about it. I think opera's going to be fine.
3: You think opera's going to be fine? I mean, structurally, as you look around the country, in places that are not the Met, obviously the the classic style of doing opera is harder and harder to do. The economics really militate against the form in a lot of ways. Although, uh, obviously if you're sort of following chamber orchestra, an awful lot of the really exciting artistic statements being made these days are being made as chamber opera. When you say opera is going to be fine, what do you mean?
7: I think the Audiences' hunger for stories told through song is not going to go away. Whether or not that means that there's going to be a focus on, on chamber work, or whether or not that means there's going to be a sort of refined focus on on fewer grand pieces, I'm, I'm not. You know, I can't predict that. But I think anxiety about the future of the genre is really not helping anyone. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, it assumes a past that I think is is false, and it also. I think you'll find that most people who have something to say about the future of anything are in some weird way being paid for this. If that makes sense, it's, they're not doing it as a service to humankind, right? You'll, you'll find that on the, on the back end, someone's on the take.
3: <laughs> well, do you worry that you'll find that, I mean, having worked on this scale, I mean, it really doesn't get better than this. It's the Met. It doesn't get better than this. And who knows, maybe you'll have 20 more opportunities over the course of your career to do it at this level, at this scale. Are you a little worried that it might, having seen Paris, it might be hard to go back to a smaller scale opera?
7: No, I, you know, I have to say, I, the scale is, is, obviously, it's thrilling and insane, and, you know, you it's just so exciting. But, no, I always look forward to making works in different sizes. You know, the other day I heard a piece of mine that I wrote for Hillary Hahn, which is just her, you know, against a drone. And you can still, you know, there's, there are ways to... As, as a composer, you're, I think it's good to be able to work in different scales and keep all those muscles working.
3: You know, you sort of already answered this question in a way, but why, why opera specifically? In other words, there's lots of ways to tell a story, and, and uh, you know, if you walk around New York, there are an awful lot of people doing musicals, which are, are songs interspersed with spoken word. What's the specific power of opera? Why do you want to work in that form?
7: I mean for me it's, it has to do with the quality of the voices i 've yet to really fall in love with with a musical theater voice
3: mm-hmm.
7: for me what 's so miraculous about opera is that it is this insane tightrope walk of technique of language of uh, just working with the acoustics of an enormous space that you don't find in musical theater. I mean, the, the argument like opera versus musical theater is, is another boring one, too, because, you know, I, I always feel like if, you know, 10 minutes spent worrying about that is 10 minutes, you could, you could spend, like, learning German or doing something useful with your life. So in terms of a form of expression, I mean, you, you try to make a piece that fits the constraints of the commission, if that makes sense. Like, it, the Met asks for a piece, I'm going to give them a grand opera. I'm not going to be like, here's my weird, like, nine synthesizer Tron video opera.
3: <laughs> well, you know, that brings me back to the question that, that irritated you. I'm just going to ask it one more time before you go. You know, I was asking you before about style, and I probably phrased it the wrong way. But, you know, in some ways, listening to Du Bois, there is a way of singing, a, a, an operatic voice, uh, as you just described, a technique, as you described. And, and then coming out of that uh, technique, you know, you might hear a line like, the stud that wants to get you off, which I think people aren't used to hearing in, in that operatic voice, in that, using well, that they technique. They are and they
7: aren't. I mean, it's, you know, if you, if you listen to Don Giovanni, it's, he, it's a rape diary the whole first 20 minutes. I mean, I I think the specific words, yes, there are moments of dissonance between the, the beauty of the thing, but what's fun about opera is that the people who sing it are people, and they're people who have lived lives, and they're actors who can bring their experiences as human beings to, you know, in- interpreting a, a hard line like, you know, gob on it or whatever, which is how people talk to each other online.
3: Absolutely. Well, listen, uh, Nico Muly it's so great to talk to you. Congratulations on your success. We're going to close with a little bit more uh, from, uh, from the Opera 2 boys. Why don't we play a little bit of uh, I'm Only 16? And, and, Nico, as, as the audience is listening to this, and this NPR audience, they like opera, but maybe they're, they're not too familiar with, with what you've done or, or the vein that you're working in. I don't, what, what do you want them to listen to as they listen to a little bit of this?
7: This is an aria from the, from the first act of the opera, and it's, a sort of, it's less of an aria and more of a swelling in the road um, where we have this young boy who's trying to explain to this woman why it is that he sort of throws himself at the mercy of the computer instead of actually engaging with his parents or friends. At the beginning, it's sort of herky-jerky and him you know, being nervous and uncomfortable, and then all of a sudden, as he sort of gets into the rhythm of his story and into, into the rhythm of the sort of elegance of what it's like to not have to deal with people offline, but to basically submerge yourself in this bath of online relationships, um, the music sort of assumes a regular, a regular heartbeat and a regular footprint, which I think is pretty clear.
3: All right, Nico Muley, so great to talk to you. And let's end with I'm Only 16.
2: Today's opera, The Misplaced Amazon Order, was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, with help from our intern, Tess Aronson. The part of Bill Curry was played by Placido Domingo. Tweetmaster Greg Hill is watching over WNPR Colin from the mezzanine seats. Check out WNPR.org for audio, photos, and extras. And now, back to Colin.
3: All right, we're back. We're still talking about opera in the studio. Willie Waters and Steve Metcalf uh, on the line from The Washington Post, uh, actually from The Washington Studios. Uh, Ann Majette is with us. She's a critic for The Washington Post. So much to cover and so little time that's left. Um, Ann Majette, uh, I think it's fair to say that actually you, you weren't entirely a, a fan of Nico Muhly's <laughs> opera. So um, if you didn't like it, what didn't you like about it? Did you not like it as opera or, or did you just not like the music?
6: No, I thought I thought the choral writing was wonderful. I thought he had some of the same trouble with the arias that we were talking about before. It's difficult to write well for the solo voice and to figure out how you want to do that dramatically. And I thought the libretto was a big problem. I thought it was odd that somebody as hip and with it as Nico presented a piece that was really about sort of the perils of this evil place, the Internet, which was, I think, largely based on the um, input from the librettist Who was an older person who maybe wasn't quite as plugged into the internet. But it became this very sort of moralistic tale about these horrible identity shifts that can happen on the internet, which we all know about, but it seemed a little, a little. Naive to me. I didn't. There was a lot of great. There were a lot of great things about it, and the performances were super. There was some really good singing, but I was a little disappointed overall.
3: Steve Minkoff, I'm going to ask you the question that I asked him. Uh, there's something. There's a clash. There's a clash that's almost comic about this pedestrian vernacular language sung in this high operatic operatic style at times. Is there a way to solve that if you're going to write in a contemporary vein? If you're going to write about contemporary figures, contemporary issues, how do you make it sound operatic and not goofy?
5: Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, Goofy, uh, it it is a tough one. Well, you know, in a way, it it kind of reminds me of yet another another Sondheim lesson here. You know, people have asked Sondheim over the years um whether whether he thinks his shows are operas and and he very often answers by saying that he he is not a fan of this sort of trained, you know, operatic if you will voice and that and that when he thinks of his material, he thinks of it as being rendered more by, you know, kind of straight ahead broadway voices, non-legit voices as some people say in the business. Um and I think that's what I think that's what ordinary people perceive. I mean, it's even even little kids, you know, when you talk about opera, they suddenly, you know, do, do this do this kind of uh uh parody of 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 what they think a, you know, serious voice sounds like. And I think that's the problem. We're not accustomed to hearing Those kinds of words come out of that kind of voice.
3: You know, Willie, is there, is there some fundamental bargain that we could almost lose here that is at the heart, at least, of the classical understanding of opera? You know, the more technology that gets piled in here, the more that we, you know, really do have all kinds of uh, not only new themes, but new technologies, new ways of staging opera. You know, there's, there's this older idea that there's this big space and this big music, and these unmiked voices are almost athletically going to address the problem of filling this space and connecting with the audience. That that's what opera is. It's really this, this Kind of massive and, as I say, almost athletic undertaking to do something like that, um, is that part of opera that kind of has to stay to keep you engaged as a as an opera performer
4: yeah as far as i 'm concerned, it is because <clears throat> then why have the two different genres you know then you know i mean it would all meld into one and and as i said earlier a lot of the lines are being blurred now anyway but but one of the distinctive things about opera is the use of the human voice the way the voice is trained and the way the voice is used to perform this music which generally is not done um, in musical theater, although there are a lot of legit uh, theater voices, you know, that sing a lot of you know legit things in theater, but it's not just as prominent uh, or, or as prevalent in, in musical theater. But I I think that's an important part about opera, and I don't think we should apologize for it. You know, that's what it is, and people just have to get used to it. But it's that getting used to that that becomes the problem.
5: And as May a quick- I
6: play devil's advocate for a minute, that Broadway was not amplified exactly. two generations right, ago. Right, exactly, right, right, right. Broadway singers tr- were. Legitimate voices in the yeah. sense that opera voices are, and that distinction is so recent that it feels funny to me to push Broadway away as not legitimate. Exactly. when The John Rates and Mary Martins of this world and Ethel Merman, goodness knows, had amazing voices. <laughs> I
4: agree, but I agree.
5: it's still, but it's still true at at another level that that a lot of the early so-called crossover albums, in which opera singers, you know, attempted to sing Gershwin and Porter and stuff, were were fairly risible in their, you know, in their sort of uh, results. And I, you know, I don't mean to pick on any particular one, including Kiri Takanoa, but, I mean, they, they didn't they didn't succeed, and I think that, you know, artists these days either don't attempt it or they or they try to rein it in somehow. I think a
4: lot of but that has as much to do with style also, the style of singing in, in addition to the quality of the voice. Right. But and you but, can't
6: really be prescriptive about this stuff because there are people who are going to do it well. It's sort of like the question of how can you set the voice to sound good or bad with the words that you're getting thrown yeah, at you. Yeah, right. Some composers have a knack for it. Some composers don't. Some composers are finding their way. But there's not one way to do it
3: right. Yeah, I agree. All right, I, I don't dare <laughs> ask another question because we're essentially out of time here. This has been really uh, fun, though. Uh, Willie Waters, uh, great to have you in the studio. Steve Thank Metcalf, uh, also great to have you back. And Majette, first time uh, from the Washington Post. I'm sure we'll talk to you again. She's a uh, chief uh, classical music critic at the Washington Post. We also talked to Nico Muley.
2: I'm Kyone Wolf. My next opera is called Il Sono Un cattivito Schimia Senza cervello," And Google Translate says that's I'm a bad monkey with no brains? Huh. I think it's going to be a hit.